uncovering the truth of or uncovering what happened took me until I was 17 years old to figure it out. So nobody told you? No one told me. Instead, anyone who ever left this organization, they would say died and went to hell. So I believed that this woman who had these two kids was dead and in hell. Mm-hmm. So it, I didn't care that she didn't take me. I was, if anything, I was like, no, please don't take me out of here. This is my home. This mm-hmm. is, I don't want to be in the world, which is what we called anything outside our, our compound. I didn't want to be in the world where the devil was running around and where evil persisted. Mm-hmm. Like, if anything, they should be back in our group. Welcome to And Then Everything Changed, a podcast about the pivotal moments in life and the decisions that define us. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Hi, thanks for listening to this episode of And Then Everything Changed. Since you're here, you probably appreciate stories that take you into another person's life and their experience. My friend Becky Odd-Jenison has a podcast that does just that. She began the Death Dialogues Project to help her cope with her grief, and now she interviews guests about their losses and helps to remember and celebrate their loved ones' lives. You can find the Death Dialogues Project on most podcast platforms, and she has new episodes every week. Once again, that's called the Death Dialogues Project. A note that in this episode, my guest talks about what life was like on a cult, and some listeners might find his memories of abuse and violence disturbing. So if you would like to avoid that part of the episode, you can stop listening at the 30-minute mark. Today, my guest is Benjamin Risha. Welcome, Benjamin. Thanks, Ronit. Yeah, I'm happy to be sitting here with another lefty. <laughs> yeah, you pointed that out. Do you notice left-handed people wherever you go? Um, yeah, I tend to. You know, I notice, I'm, I feel like a child, because like, I feel like when I see someone on a movie, in a movie or on television, yeah. or even a politician, someone in a really powerful position using their left hand, I still say, oh, look, it's a lefty. Yeah. Do you do like, that? Yeah, it tries to add, yeah, I try to add like some credence to my leftiness <laughs> to make I mean, me more normal. I don't think there's anything <laughs> wrong with it, but I do hold my pen really strangely. Do you? No, I, I don't. Um, there was a kid that was a lefty when I was growing up and he used to write upside down. <laughs> and I used to really make sure that I held my, my hand oh, I'm, as I, normal as possible. So you don't get the um, the ink blotch on the, the heel yeah, of your hand? Yeah, I have to lift it up. And oh. I used to make a joke when I, when I learned Hebrew. Uh-huh. I said God God was left-handed, right? Because if he writes from right to left, <laughs> he wouldn't smudge the ink. <laughs> exactly. That's a good point. Well, I mean, you know, in a way. It's, I don't know if he's writing up <laughs> well, there or she's writing. Or, yeah, I don't know if they right. use implements to write. I don't yeah, know. I know right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I am so happy that you have time to talk with me today. And you have a story that's very different from the average person's story. And when you introduce yourself to people or when people start to get to know you or say, hey, where did you grow up? Yeah. Um, how do you answer that question? Um, usually I say, are you sure you want to hear this? Because <laughs> it's nothing like you've ever heard before. And uh-huh. I couldn't make it up if I tried to. It's stranger than fiction. And then they usually say, well, tell me. And uh-huh. so we start, I say, you know, I, I grew up in a I usually call it a commune first, a commune in Arkansas. 
And that's usually the introduction. And then once I get into the details, we start learning. It's much more than a commune. Uh-huh. And but, so when you say commune, is there an extra interest on the listener's part right away or? Um, yeah, there's a, it kind of piques their interest a bit. And if, for me, it's a soft way to talk about a pretty traumatic experience. It, to me, commune is kind of, it's not totally acceptable in the United States, but for the most part, um, communes are were kind of cool back in the 60s and 70s. Um, if I would introduce it as a cult, I would, I used to feel really, um, I felt too different mm -hmm. to say I grew up in a cult, even though that's really what it was. Mm -hmm. um, and can you, can you name the cult? Yeah. So the Tony and Susan Alamo Christian Foundation was the name of the organization probably for the longest amount of time, but this organization would mutate and change in name only um, as lawsuits and as the government would try to pin them down for tax evasion or uh, labor law issues. So it went from Foursquare Church to the Su Tony and Susan Alamo Christian Foundation to uh, just the Alamo Foundation to some other innocuous names for tax purposes. And and did the there was a Tony and Susan? Yeah, Tony and Susan Alamo were... Those were actually pseudonyms that they assumed um, that concealed their real identities. But I, I grew up with them in their mansion, in their house, as one of, as basically as their son um, from 1975 ish to 1982. Wow! So yeah, th those were a big chunk of your childhood. Yeah, for the, for a good portion of my childhood, they I recognized them as my parents. But I also had other parents that were kind of like satellite parents that um, floated in and out of my life when Tony and Sue were not available. So can you um, can you take me back a little bit to how your parents, your birth parents, came to be members of this cult? Sure. Um, so initially in 1969, after Woodstock, my mom, she was 20, she 21? No, she would have been about uh, 19, 19 mm -hmm. or 20. And she drove a car with uh, about four of her friends out to Hollywood. The car broke down like in New Mexico. And one of the friends went ahead into Hollywood to, well, I'm not sure why he went, <laughs> but he got recruited by this group. Mm. The This group was out on the streets saying, you know, repent or perish. The kingdom of heaven, you know, hell is coming and God's coming back to judge you. You need to get right with God. And... um so he got recruited. She met him about a week later and tried to get him out of the organization. And Your mom. My mom did. My mom found him on the streets and went into the group to get him. And instead she fell in love, as she says, with the music. They had a, like why a huge group of musicians that were just really talented. Um, and she eventually married a man there. Hmm. Then my father, my father was the, uh, so my mom also, she's Jewish American. Mm -hmm. I should say that. And not really practicing, but, you know. Like so many Jews. Yeah, like, like so many Like Jews. me, like yeah. culturally Jewish. Culturally Jewish. That's a really good way to say it. Yeah. Um, and I think she was somewhere on the spectrum of believing in Jesus as, as a savior, but really more feeling the communal side of life in this place. Mm -hmm. And that's that's really what she fell in love with. I think, you know. Was she searching from, I mean, she was going to Hollywood. Do you know, do you understand why she was going to Hollywood in the first place? Um, it was kind of like the, I think she was 
intentionally trying to get to San Francisco, but her friend went to Hollywood, so she went to go get him. Uh. But I, I think they were kind of, they were just traveling. It was the night, it was 1969 or at the end of 1969. And I think a lot of people were just looking for um, enlightenment or, you know, some deeper connection to the universe, to the world, to other people. Mm-hmm. And I think with the, the, the peace and love movement was, it was still strong, but there were a lot of other movements that were fading out. And so this organization kind of filled that mm-hmm. void. Um, my father was in the same sort of boat. He was the youngest of nine children. His his family was a Lebanese American. They came here in 1904. By the way, my mom's family came in 1880. Wow. And um, so my my father he got into an altercation with a couple of guys and he got stabbed when he was younger. And um, for whatever happened, he got hooked on morphine. The doctors gave him morphine. He went out to the streets in Hollywood and found heroin and found the party scene. Huh. So I'm not sure exactly why he chose there to to party, but that's what he did. And, then and, he, and he wasn't from there? No, he wasn't from there. He was from Detroit and Pennsylvania. Oh. Um, so he hitchhiked out there and found found people out there too. So then they both end up. They, they both end up in this group. And my mom was married. My mom married by the time my father had joined the group. And then so her first husband died in the organization. He got punched by a, a Hell's Angels when he was preaching to the guy. Mm-hmm. And um, he developed a, a brain tumor and he eventually passed away. And your mom is really young at that point. Yeah, my mom was like 20-something, maybe 21, 22 and she's a widow. A widow now and um, mourning the lo- the loss of her first husband and the love of her life. And she had two children by the time he died. So they had been married for about two years. Hmm. And um, he dies and the the leaders of the church start to accuse her of not having enough faith to save his soul. And, that's, and to save his life, I mean. And they, they would claim that God took him early because she was such a horrible person, when in reality what was happening was inside the commune, she was a leader. She was the person that she knew Hebrew, so she would actually read Hebrew text and Mm -hmm. compare it to English, and she would point out some of the things that these leaders were saying weren't, in her opinion, biblically accurate. So let me pause so I understand a little more about what the framework was of the organization. The name is a little bit descriptive, but what was their... Like, what was their foothold? What were they saying was the dogma you had to believe in? Oh, yeah, great, great question. Um, So the organization was a Christian fundamentalist organization. They believed in in end-time prophecy. They believed that Jesus Christ, and they they preached that Jesus Christ was coming back to earth any moment, Mm -hmm. and that if you did not get your soul right with God, you would end up in hell forever. That was the core of 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 their belief system. Um, surrounding that was, you know, the Ten Commandments, the the uh, the New Testament as being the the only way to or the um, the main uh, religious text. Mm-hmm. And so, reading the Bible was was you know an everyday practice. Prayer was an everyday practice. Uh, we had prayer hours, multiple prayer hours, where you'd pray an hour multiple times a day. Um, Going without um, the physical 
needs, so or maybe not physical needs, uh, going without um, the the comforts of mm-hmm. life. So food, <laughs> sometimes so shelter, deprivation, deprivation was... was a normal thing. Mm-hmm. It was taught that that the the more basically the more you deprived yourself of something, the more you were getting closer to God. It was godly. It was godly. to be deprived. And yeah. did they do that with the children too? Yes, they did. They, um, I can remember fasting as a child, as young as five years old going like a day without food every single week. Um, and I it was a, it was a point of pride. I thought mm. I was cool. And then when I, I remember going up by the time I was 10, this is crazy. We went on a two week fast, two weeks of no food, just water and food or not water and food, just water. And you could eat like a little bit of soup. You could drink soup with a little bit of noodles. Most of the kids couldn't do that. I did a week and I would eat kind of behind the scenes quietly, but there were a couple kids that made it to two weeks. And when I got to a week, I passed out in school. I, 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 rem- I completely had no energy and I, had, yeah. I got a concussion and stuff like that because I hit the floor. Did, did the you know, teachers, were they in agreement with this? Yeah, our teachers were members of the organization. So this was a closed community. You couldn't get onto the property unless mm-hmm. unless you were part of the group. You couldn't leave the property also. Is uh, that right? Without, yeah, and we can get into that later if you want, but. Okay, yeah. so so how many of you, so how many are on the commune at the point that your mom hasn't met your dad yet? Do you know? Yeah, there were about 500 people. Wow, that's pretty, that's pretty big. Yeah, that's a good size. And they were living in an area called Saugus, California. In the mountains, they purchased, I think they had five properties. Um, most of them were old, like there was one old barn with chicken coops that um, my dad was a carpenter. So he, he renovated the chicken coops and those were those were married couples' bedrooms, like beds. And the, the previously they lived. used. Yeah, previously. And they were, uh, initially they had no sides. They just had chicken wire and a tin roof. And in Saugus, in the winter, it gets really cold there. And people were cold for the first year. And then he closed them up. And um, they still were freezing cold. They had no running water. They had no, um, the toilets. There was one toilet in a farmhouse. And um, I'm getting ahead of myself, but my, my, my mom's husband now, who she's been married to, used to carry buckets, the buckets that people would pee into and, and use... And he would have to haul them, you know, a quarter mile down a hill, dump them. In the meantime, Tony and Susan Lamo had a house in Malibu. They had a man. And okay, so it starts the disparities between the followers and the leaders are vast. Mm-hmm. You know, so, I was thinking about this a couple of weeks ago when I interviewed someone who interviews people who've lived on on communes and cults mm-hmm. and who were children who were raised on them. And she I started to think how are there any of these organizations that the disparity is not there, that the leaders don't get the best of everything? Because I've yet to see that. I've yet to see that. But maybe I haven't done enough research. Um, yeah, it's, I've. I've read a ton of books on these, and it's always the same thing. It's always the same. I'm also curious if these leaders, if they know going in exactly what the master plan is and how to manipulate people, or they just get better and better at it as they see it working. Yeah, I think I think it, it's a little bit of both because they know they can manipulate maybe one or two types of people. And then once they do that, they start getting good at it. 
And that's exactly what happened in this case. I, I could get down to the very first recruit and how they did it and what they did. I want to hear so much. I mean, I <laughs> so, hope we have enough I know. <laughs> uh, you know, time for all this because your story is complex and yeah. you, you're very willing to share it. And I appreciate that. Um, so so I guess before we understand how your dad and mom got together, what what was good that you understand? Like, why were people there? Aside from the music, what was what was being offered that kept people there besides this cold, cold weather, these bad conditions? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, so the brotherhood and sisterhood, the 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 bond between the people, that was every that was I'd say probably eighty five percent of it, the mm-hmm. camaraderie, the love, the true friendship that la- that that was made during these intense times. I think that kept a lot of people there. Yeah. Um, maybe the other fifteen percent was the message that that they yeah they were actually saving the world from hellfire and damnation. Um, I think that was preached all the time, but I think at the end of the day, um, that can only take you so far, but when you've got, you know, a hundred other people right next to you and they all love you and they know everything about you and that you've got their back and they've got your back, I think that takes you really far. Mm-hmm. And that's... It's a family, right? It's and a family. A lot of people yeah. who are drawn to these places, I mean, I don't know that I'm completely accurate, are looking for something. My dad was one of those people. He was really looking for family. Mm-hmm. The youngest of nine, but that's exactly true. They're so, looking for family. So how did he and your mom get together then? So then, so if you can imagine my mom's mourning, the death of this of her husband, and about a year after he's he's in the grave cult leaders come to her and say, um, they use an old biblical term, put out a fleece. So Gideon uh, was a leader of the Israelites at one point, and he had this notion that you put out a lamb's fleece, and if it's wet in the morning, it means one thing, and if it's Mm. dry, it means another thing. So they used to use this term, put out a fleece, which was to say, ask God what you should do about your next steps in your life and whether or not you should marry this man, Ed Risha, Mm -hmm. Edward Risha. And my mom's response initially was just like, you've got to be crazy. I barely know Ed. You know, he's a nice guy, but I don't love him. Um, What are you talking about? And they just said, just pray about it. And a week later, they came back to her and said, um, even without her response, they didn't care what she, what the fleece said to her. (laughs) They said, God told us you need to marry this man. Um, It'll be a sign of peace between Arabs and Jews and there's more at risk than you loving him. That's a, basically almost word for word what they told her. Hmm. And she began crying immediately. And basically, I think she went into kind of into shock and she refused. So they sent her to this work farm in Bakersfield, California, in a rose field without gloves. And she's now, she had a three-year-old and now a one-year-old child. Hmm. So she's away from her kids for like 18 hours a day working and they're trying to break her down. Mm-hmm. After a couple weeks, she's her hands are bloody, her arms are bloody, and she says, okay, if you're my spiritual leaders and this is what God wants, I'll marry Edrisha. Well, what was Edrisha thinking at that time? Do you know? Um, my dad was more than happy to marry her. My mom was a beautiful young woman. Mm-hmm. Um a lot of people loved her in this organization. I know my dad loved her. I'm not sure my mom loved him, mm-hmm. but I'm pretty sure he was pretty infatuated with her, with her beauty, with her 
overall um, charm and and personality. Were they around the same age? Yeah, I think my my dad, my dad actually might have been a year younger than my mom. Mm -hmm. So he was uh, twenty three now at this point, mm -hmm. and my mom was twenty four. Mm -hmm. So they get married. Well, there was a wedding, <laughs> and there's a big celebration. Peace between Arabs and Jews has been made. It's a big deal in the community. Um, by this time, there's probably, we're getting close to like 600 people in the organization, not counting the kids. And they go down to the city recorder to file the paperwork. And my mom sends my dad out of the office and refuses to sign the paperwork. Oh. And comes back and says, all right, we're all done. And so didn't make it legal. Interesting. She had the wherewithal to know, to listen to her heart, to say, hey, there's something wrong here and I'm not going to, I'm not going to be pushed into this. I'll have the wedding. We can make it look like it's legal, like it's legit. But at the end of the day, it was, it was a union, but not a legal union. Mm -hmm. At least mm -hmm. not to the state of California. Mm -hmm. And yet she's not ready to leave the organization. No. She's got her children and her community there. She's got her community. She just knows she doesn't want to be uh, legally bound to this guy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, they're still berating her from the pulpit. Um, even after he they marry, they still send her to work long hmm. hours. They sent everybody really to work, but they really made her life miserable. Um do you think that's because she was a leader? I think so. I know so. That's and that's what she's told me. She's she's conveyed that on several levels. Was that if she had just been quiet and not ever corrected them, just kept her head down, no one would have noticed. But that's not who she was. Mm -hmm. um, she used to pre pre proofread the literature that they would produce, hmm. and not only were there spelling errors and grammar errors. Lit actual misquotes from the Bible, so she would correct them automatically, and these people would find that they they had a very specific message they were trying to tailor, and when she would correct it, it would get their message off <laughs> off point. Yeah, and so they would get her for that too. But they needed her too. Yeah, so they, they weren't her. gonna banish her. Yeah, she she also came to the group with um, publishing skills, so she used to work at PBS before as a young as a young apprentice, so she mm -hmm. knew how printing presses worked. And she knew how to run an organization. So she ran their, their printing office for a long time. Wow. And they needed that. They needed the propaganda. So what is daily life like? So you're you're living here and, you know, you're you're born, mm -hmm. right? And, yeah. I mean, I don't know if there's – you have a lot of memories of what life was like. You know, what was good? Um, the best thing in the world for me were my friends. Mm -hmm. um, second to that would be the – I had there was a reverence that I had by by growing up with as the cult leader's like ch child essentially. Um, oh, how did that happen? Yeah, I know. We're um, so okay. So my mom, my mom eventually. Let me back up. So her husband, her first husband, um, her name was his name was Brian. Brian had a best friend named Kent, and Kent loved my mom also. And Kent, when, when Brian died, went to the cult leaders, Tony and Susan, and said, I'd like to marry her. I love her. I will take care of her. And they said, you're a Gentile. You're not, you're not a Jew. We can't mix Jews and Gentiles. Because they knew they were trying to hook up my mom and my dad. Now, he's, he's, he's watching 
all of this from the sidelines. He can't do anything. He watches the marriage or the wedding, excuse me, watches me get born, but he still stays in contact with her and lets her know, hey, I care for you. I'll take care. He babysits me, he babysits my brother and my sister. And eventually he finds somebody that will take him and my mom and me to California and basically get out of the group. Mm-hmm. And they have a window of opportunity. Um, this is about six months after I'm born. And my family gets moved from Saugus, California, out to Arkansas to a little town called Dyer, population like 20. Dyer? Dyer, Arkansas. Have you heard of it? <laughs> no, I just can't believe <laughs> oh, even it. even the it's... word is called yeah, Dyer? I can't believe it. <laughs> it's not D-I-R-E. Okay. It's D-Y, okay. uh, D-Y-E-R. <laughs> I think D-I-R-E would be too much, <laughs> <laughs> be much. even but for this story. That's funny. I never thought of that <laughs> in all my life. I mm-hmm. never thought of that. So they're in this little town called Dyer, Arkansas. My dad has built houses for everybody. Um, and her window of, of opportunity to escape comes up. And she's working night shifts in in this restaurant that we had. And so I was being babysat. And my dad decided to come get me at like 5 in the morning. Um, this would have been in yeah, September. And the, the weather was cool. but So he takes me and takes me for a walk. And my mom gets off her work shift, comes and tries to find me, and I'm gone. I'm not with the babysitter. And her ride is leaving to go to California. Mm. She takes her two kids and this man, Kent, and they they leave. Uh. So that's how. So after that, I'm then given to one family to nurse to because I'm only six months old. I get nursed. I get handed to another family for about six months to a year off and on, and then I move in with the with the Alamos. So as an adult, um, how did you come to understand or do you feel about that? So that's a really good question. Um, when I was 13 years old, someone showed me a picture of these two kids, and one of them, one of the boys, there was a boy and a girl, and one of the boys was wearing a jacket that I used to wear when I was a little kid, and I recognized it, and they said, this is your brother and your sister. And I was like, yeah, I've got hundreds of brothers and sisters. Who cares? And they said, no, this is your biological. You guys share a, a single mom. You guys share the same mom. That was the first time I re- it like clicked. I had an aha moment that, oh, I came from one woman. I never had the concept of, of a single mom. I had so many moms. I had at least seven of them before I was seven years old. So, so it... Your question was, how did I feel? That your mom had not brought you. Oh, yeah. So, but uncovering the truth of, or uncovering what happened took me, well, it took me until I was 17 years old to figure it out. And we'll, we'll we'll get to all that. So nobody told you. No one told me. Instead, anyone who ever left this organization, they would say died and went to hell. So I believed that this woman who had these two kids was dead and in hell. Mm-hmm. So it didn't, it, I didn't care that she didn't take me. I was, if anything, I was like, no, please don't take me out of here. This is my home. This mm-hmm. is, I don't want to be in the world, which is what we called anything outside our, our compound. I didn't want to be in the world where the devil was running around and where evil persisted. Mm-hmm. Like, if anything, they should be back in our group. Right. Um, and so. as kids, as kids, did you sleep in one place or did you sleep with families? I mean, I know you yeah. ended up in a special position. Yeah. No, we... 
every, the kids all had their families, mm-hmm. so everyone stayed at night with their families. I was always sleeping over, though, with other other families. Mm-hmm. I kind of got to float around. It was a double-edged sword of not for not having my own parents. I had tons of other parents. Mm-hmm. I still have people that I call mom and hmm. dad as as like a soft way of addressing their, you know, and respecting them for taking care of me when I was younger. Do you, do you feel you were loved? Yeah, I do feel I was loved. Um, but there was definitely a level of neglect from the organization and it but it wasn't just to me it was to a lot of to all the other kids um there's a lot of abuse that happens in places like this like what so seeing seeing people beaten is a very traumatic thing it's a very um very painful painful thing um seeing people other people abused verbally is traumatic it's it's abuse also and on a consistent basis i grew up hearing it seeing it from the from tony alamo um i remember remember i must have been like eight um this was right after susan alamo died um and by the way after she died that's when it all everything really started going south really fast mm-hmm. and i mean south i mean uh abusive the abuse was really more prevalent but i remember seeing a little boy and that little boy was told to smack his own mother because his mom misquoted a bible verse and the little boy doesn't want to do it and he's tony alamo threatened him and said if you don't do it i'm going to beat you so the boy smacks his mom and i'm like you know the boy's crying and he's tony alamo is like no harder and the little boy can't, I mean, this boy must have been five, can't bring his hand up against his mom. His mom is crying too. And there's a group of people just watching it. And the scene plays out where eventually Tony is yelling at this kid, like, hit her, you know, and the rage from him still boils in me. Like, I can, I can feel it right now. I can see it. It's all. So that, that mm-hmm. kind of trauma doesn't go away. The mm-hmm. body... There's a great book called The Body Keeps the Score, and it's it really talks about PTSD and how to deal with it. And and that's what I've learned is that the stuff, the body remembers it. Um, my job is to is to be aware of myself and be aware of these things and, and um, implement the coping mechanisms that I've learned and strategies to, to be happy and whole and complete. But yeah, so this stuff... Sorry, I see you breathing. No, I'm, I'm absolutely it's, just uh, trying to hold the space for you. Yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, I, to go back to your original question, I felt loved, but the love was always mixed with fear, with terror. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and as I, I've, I've written a book, and as I've written this book, I've learned that maybe I didn't have the support that I thought I did. Yeah, I might have been in a house with a family, but these families were under their own stress in addition, not only just the stress of life, but then the stress that cult life brings with it Mm -hmm. of always needing to be on guard. We were, we believed that any day Jesus Christ would show up and that we would have to, or there there was that. So we were always prepared, always holy. Mm -hmm. That and the fear that the government would seize our property and we would have to flee to the mountains. Mm-hmm. 
this was another phrase, fleeing to the mountains, that we, we were, there was a mountain range that I used to look at in Arkansas, and I used to just estimate how far would it take, how long would it take me to get there? I had a bow and arrow. I always had a backup fishing pole, <laughs> you know, a little knife, and I was always ready to. And so, to, so that on guard all the time for survival. All the time, all the time for your whole life. You hmm. can't imagine that. I, I I don't know how else to say it other than just to say what. what it's it it's was. like this need that you're going to have to take shelter at some point. You're going to have to run away. Yeah, but, any moment. Yeah, where you live is not permanent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even though we had our own houses, and yeah, so there's a hyper vigilance that I learned, um, and I've had to in my life. I've had to deconstruct that. So, so even though it's it's in, it's an interesting juxtaposition because you're you've got a community of sorts. Well, it is a community, even though you're not you don't belong to one particular family. You're yeah. kind of floating around. Yeah, you have friends. You sound like you felt a sort of holiness or something sacred there but you're also in fear and you're witnessing traumatic things and you know that everything could just disappear in a second if you have to go that's right so do you think that you were in a high stress state absolutely that's just a great way to say it high stress all the time um and that just became normal like that was normalized um do you I, think they used it? Did they use that for yeah. as a way to control? Yeah, absolutely. Um, if you study cults, you'll see that that leaders know that you have they have to keep their followers always on their on their heels, always always in a state of unknown. Um, you know, not knowing where what what's going to happen next, where their next meal is going to come from. You know, whether or not they're going to even sleep in the same bed at night. Those are all techniques that, that cult leaders use. It's almost as if like there's a playbook out there <laughs> and they're all reading the same book. The cult leader playbook? Yeah, I know. It's horrible. It's <laughs> if so you bad. dream it, you can have it. Oh, no. Um, yeah. Well, it's it's a testament to how maybe malleable people are and how much they're willing to overlook. It's, it's overlook and there's this... Uh, have you heard of the frog in the yes. in the hot water analogy? Yeah. Cuz yeah, because these people were slowly boiled. Mm. I don't think anyone consciously willingly joins a cult unless they're a criminal and they're trying to hide from the law and mm-hmm. they can make, but for the 99.9% of people, they don't know they're joining. And it's there's this groupthink that mm-hmm. happens. So if you were to study the Holocaust and what happened there with Otherwise, perfectly fine Germans able to kill people mm-hmm. in horrible ways. There's a group think that takes place over time. And it's like, oh, well, that person's not saying anything about this horrible thing we just did. I better not say it either because then I'm going to look weird. Mm-hmm. And cult leaders take advantage of that, too. They know that there's this social dynamic where people people want to fit in. And if you've created a culture that... that um, permits and promotes um, stress and promotes abuse, that that's going to proliferate because no one's going to buck. Mm-hmm. No one's going to buck the trend. And also people are connected, so leaving would mean losing their people, their community, yeah. and children even, or oh, spouses, right? Spouses, children, um, They the longer they're in it, the more they've given to it, and also the less skill set they have when they leave, so getting a job outside. And then the mind control to believe that you're going to burn in hell. Mm-hmm. If you leave, mm-hmm. you're going to die and burn in hell. 
that, that's scary. That is terrifying. And that was pushed on us daily. It was real. Oh, it was absolutely real. Um, I'm getting ahead of myself again, but at one point I get to see, I got to see the world for the first time when I was, uh, I just turned 16. I was 15 when the federal government raided our property and I went out to the world without chaperones and I literally thought the cracks on the asphalt would open up. And it was summer when I got out and I remember seeing it bubbling, like bubbling asphalt just from the heat. And I was terrified. I would walk on the grass. I would do anything to not walk on the... Well, you had no one else to... You had no one else to check in with that you trusted to say that this was not so. Yeah. Everyone you knew subscribed to it. Everyone. Yeah. No point of... No other point of reference. Um, But as... There were little things and and which... um, Little things that came up that let me know this is wrong. So like the title of of your podcast is And Then Everything Changed. Mm Mm-hmm. I had a bunch of little, not a bunch, a few moment, a few things that built up to where everything changed for me, and I knew. Can okay. you tell me what those yeah. are? So, so when I was seven, Susan Alamo died, and Tony and Sue claimed that they were the prophets of God, and that if either of them died, they would raise up from the dead on the third day. It's prophesied in the Book of Revelations, and that's who they said they were. She dies three days later. She didn't raise from the dead. I was seven, and I knew, and even then, I was like, okay, what's wrong here? Mm-hmm. Why isn't she raising from the dead? You guys said, and I couldn't say this to them, but I would say it to my friends. Papa Tony must be a false prophet. And they would say, don't, sh- <laughs> don't say that too loud. If anyone finds out that you think this, obviously, you know, you'll get beaten pretty badly. So that was in my heart. And then when I turned... Turned 13, um, I started noticing girls. They started noticing me. We would do really, really kind of normal things, holding hands, very maybe kissing once in a while. Mm -hmm. And we got caught for it. And the beatings that I had grown up seeing, so the slapping of the parents, the forced fastings, the normal paddlings, those were nothing compared to what happened on one night. So... It was normal for Tony Alamo to call us into um, this office. We we called it the spec house, but it was this mansion where he did all of his business. And he would be on the phone in his bedroom. And I'll get to why he was in his bedroom later. But he would call us into his house and we'd be put on report. Being put on report was when you had to confess your sins. You had to confess something you had done that day. Someone told on you. They reported you. So one night... About two in the morning, which is the normal time for us to be woken up, hmm. we all get pulled into this office and I, I come in, I'm last and all my friends are there. There's like 40 or 50 kids aged from like 11 to like 15. And I thought someone died. That's the only time we're ever that, that many kids is when something really bad's happened. And what happened, Tony asked me, he just, okay, Benji, did you touch Lena's breast. This, and I'm like, what? No, I, I never, you know, I immediately go into lie mode. <laughs> and I'm like, no, I did not touch her. Oh, and then I'm like, wait, by accident once. 
mm-hmm. the bus stopped too soon and I bumped into her. Mm-hmm. And he's like, that's not what she said. Calls her up. She says, no, Benji touched me, blah, blah, blah. And what was happening is she was like my girlfriend and girls would sit in front of us on a school bus um, or on a work bus. By the way, that was also something we used to do. They would send us to work during the summers from like, you know, five in the morning to like 11 at night making designer designer jackets. If we can get into that later, we can get into that. But boys would sit in back of girls and put their hand between the bus and touch touch mm-hmm. the girl that and it was all consensual. Mm-hmm. Tony found out about that and started having us all beaten really badly. He would have four men. One man would grab one arm, the other man grabbed the other arm, and then two other men would grab the legs and suspend us in the air in front of everybody. And a fifth man would take a board that they called the Board of Education. And I'm sorry I'm, I'm not saying it with so much um, sadness because... Well, I've, I've done a lot of therapy to get over this, so you might not feel, mm-hmm. I might not be conveying the pain that was there. But I received only 10 SWATs, but there were other kids that received 40, 50, and 100. Um, and so they would suspend us in the air and beat us with this board. And one of my friends who got, he kissed two girls, so he got 50 SWATs for each girl. And on the 40th SWAT, his eyes rolled back and his body went limp. And we thought he was dead. We thought that they killed him. And they lay him on the ground. And I remember seeing his eyes roll back and just like couldn't believe it. So this is the other, one of the other things that happened. The death of Susan and her not raising. And then my buddy who almost died. They ended up dragging him into another room and continuing until the 100 swats because he woke up and he was bloody literally bloody afterwards i know it's horrible yeah it's just uh, it's it's hard to fathom he was 13 13 and yeah it's it was it was horrible so after that night it was the first time that i ever felt a void I, I didn't know what a void was um, uh, in the church. Every every day we would go to church services and the adults would stand up and give what they called their testimony of how Jesus saved them. Mm-hmm. And they all had a void that Christ filled. And I never knew what that void was until after this. So I went from this like pretty much spiritual kind of kid, happy, to watching these this beating that filled me with such a darkness that I couldn't. I couldn't get inside my own self. And and that's real. That was real even to this day. There's a part of me that's just dark. Like it separated you from yourself? Yeah. And and I, I couldn't connect to like, I, I don't even know how to de- describe it. It was just like a darkness that came over me. And they separated the boys and the girls. And they told us, if you look at them, if you have any thoughts about them, that God will tell Tony and Tony will beat you again, have you beaten again. So if you can imagine a close-knit community and you walk by a girl and you're not allowed to look at them, like these are my best friends. These were girls that I loved my whole entire life. I was in such turmoil. I didn't know. I couldn't make heads from tails. Well, you couldn't trust your instincts at all. No, I couldn't. 
everything that I thought or saw was a sin. Like now, I, you know, I might as well have just gouged my eyes out. Mm-hmm. And they taught, believe it or not, they taught us that too. They said, if you're, you know, if you're, how was it? Yeah. Well, there was, a, there was some kind of scripture. It didn't go too far. Mm-hmm. But if your arm offends you, cut it off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like stuff like that. It's like, oh my God, okay. So I wonder why they were so punitive. Was the idea, were they trying to instill in you that the opposite sex was dangerous? Because people were married and had families. It wasn't like a celibate cult. So do you understand, I mean, whatever their big motives were in that, how did they justify that you weren't supposed to communicate with the opposite sex? Um, they taught us that any physical touching outside of marriage was a sin. It was like a very like Adam Eve original yeah. sin type of thing. There was that's what that's what Tony said mm-hmm. um, was that yeah that we were lusting and that we were fornicating with our minds and that that was a sin. So and but, and what about him in the bedroom? You said yeah. So so two things I learned later. The separation of the boys and girls was really the beginning of his creating a harem. He, this this man was put in, in prison eventually for 110 years for transporting minors across state lines for the purposes of sex. He was marrying girls as young as 8 years old, 12 years old, to him and to his friends. So him separating the boys and the girls was his was his way of divide and conquer. Um but, like reduce competition. Yeah, to reduce competition. And he was basically, he would he married up, he had up to 24 wives at one point. And um, this is after Susan died. This is after Susan died. And this is after I escaped um, in 1991. So it started in ni- or 92. And he would basically marry the girls of his followers. Real simple. The bedroom thing, I learned later through one of his wives that he couldn't get an erection at night unless he had a child beaten. So he would have a child come in, be put on report and say, no, God's telling me you need to get, you know, 40 swats. He'd hang up the phone and then that was his sexual thing. And, and that's what he did. And that spanned eight years. I didn't know this. Of course. And, it, but, you know, it's like adults know this. You know, yeah. in hindsight, people know it. I didn't know this. And you didn't know this because you were living in your own section of this reality. And so have you talked to women who were there when this was happening? And are you in touch with any of those people? Yeah, I'm in touch with a few of them. Um, it's a really sensitive subject. It's not something that we... I jump into. Yeah. Um, my friends, we, we always try to relive the good moments. When the bad moments come up, you know, we obviously talk about them. We're, we're close, but, um, yeah, it's, it's not, I mean, I've been out now for like 27 years, but these things are still, I can see they're still, they're still in you and all, yeah. you know, how, so how did you, in the time that we have left, yeah. I'm, I would love to know how you got out, and I am very curious what happened with your parents and you. Yeah. Okay, so so the government raided our property in in 1991. I saw the world for the first time. So when the the ground didn't open up and swallow me, that was like the third thing. 
um, where I, that's where it all changed for me. Everything was like, okay, this is clear. They've been lying to me, but I didn't have anywhere to go or anything to do. Instead, they put me in charge of an office. And at night I would go through file in, in this office were all of the church records. I started going through them looking for, um, in my case, I was looking for Sears catalogs, women in bras. Cause like <laughs> I was 16. I've, hey, and, you don't, you, know, you do not need to apologize. I had no <laughs> other sexual opportunities. And instead I found my birth certificate. I found an article about my mom and I found a picture of my mom. And it was the first time I'd ever seen my name in print. And I had a phone. So I started calling information. It said she was from, this article said she was from Brooklyn. So I started calling, I called Brooklyn information <laughs> and I found someone with her last name. And at like 3 a.m. Brooklyn time, I call and say, hey, I'm Benji, Benji Risha. I'm looking for my mom. And this lady just says, leave me alone and hangs up. I called back the next night. Same thing. Leave me alone. Quit bothering me. Click. Third night, I call back and say, I'm Benji Risha. I'm looking for my mom. My mom's name is this. And the lady goes, Benji? And I just like, tears just flew down me. And she's like, yeah, your mom's in California. Uh, what can? Wh why aren't you with her? Oh, and I just like, I'm in Arkansas. I'm looking for her. Can you give me her phone number? Can you tell me where she's at? And she gives me her phone number. I hang up. And my dad had left when I was nine. Same thing. I find my dad's uncle and, or my dad's brother and my, one of my uncles. And he says, your dad's in upstate New York. Here's his number. I call my dad. Hey, I want to get out of here. My dad says in one week, get to the airport. There'll be a ticket for you waiting for you. A week later, I call a cab. Cab shows up. I get in the cab, drive off. My stepdad, here's the cab. This is at like five in the morning. The driver, he follows us to the airport. I tell the guy where I'm from, say, I'm going to get beat really bad if they catch me. Will mm -hmm. you stop him from getting me at the airport? The taxi driver gets in the way of the guy, of my stepdad as long as he can, stops him from grabbing me. I get my ticket. I get on the tarmac, and my stepdad fly. He's running to the tarmac, and the agent, gate agent stops him, says, you don't have a ticket. You can't get on. And he's holding a cell phone. Remember those old brick? Yes. Out? He's like, I've got Papa Tony on the phone. He says, you can marry any woman you want and live anywhere you want. Just come back. And I walked up to the phone and just said, tell him he's a liar. I found my mom and dad are alive and I'm going to go live with them. And that was my, that was my escape. But that was also the beginning of him trying to marry young girls to people that he hoped would be loyal to him. And stay. And stay. And all I want to do is find my parents. So I met, I met, I found my dad. I went and stayed with him for a month. And then within that month, made arrangements to go live with my mom and met my mom. She clearly wasn't the woman from the photo. Um, but she gave me, she told me her story. She told me about how and why she left and how she couldn't take me. And the times that she did actually try to come back to get me. Um, they didn't have a lot of money, so they couldn't really fight legally against. So she did try. She tried multiple times. Did and that? She, did that help? That made me feel really good. But I also understood more about her, and I forgave her because, at, yeah, for a good, maybe for a year or so, I did feel really sad that she didn't take me with her. But when I understood what she had gone through. I, mm -hmm. I, I just identified with it and was like, oh, okay, I forgive you. I let go of this. 
This is not something, I mean, that's at the conscious level, but abandonment is abandonment, no mm -hmm. matter how you slice and dice it. So yeah, I've had to deal with abandonment issues and, mm -hmm. um, even, even though I've, I've forgiven her. Do you, yeah. is she alive? She's alive. You, yeah. Are you in touch? Yeah, we're in touch. Um, she has a, a, a home up here in the Pacific Northwest. She comes up to for the summers and then goes down to California. I'm actually going to go see her in a couple of weeks. Um, she's, she's getting up there in years, yeah. but, but she's, uh, is she no longer, does she see these days of, you know, in the sixties when she was with the cult as a different version of herself or does she understand how th she got th involved? Yeah. She understands how she got involved. And like a lot of people that got recruited by this group, they realized they were duped. They were told it was one thing and it was really another thing. And she had the wherewithal to leave after, I think she was there a total of almost seven years. Mm -hmm. So, right, from 69 to 75, so six years. Yeah. Um, so she had the wherewithal to be able to leave, but a lot of people didn't. Even though inside they knew there was something going on, they couldn't leave. Mm -hmm. People get trapped. Your father, um, do you have any similar thoughts about him not coming back for you? Yeah, that was, so I understood my father and that's why I opened up with the heroin addiction or the morphine addiction. He was, mm -hmm. he got addicted to morphine at a young age and I believe that was a downward trajectory for his life. And when, when he found the, the cult, he didn't do any drugs. His, his drug was Jesus. Mm -hmm. His drug was work. Mm -hmm. But then when he found out Tony Alamo, he actually found out that Tony Alamo was, uh, he would go to Amsterdam mm -hmm. and go to the red light district and do coke and do smoke pot and get drunk. Tony would? Tony would hmm. by himself. And my dad found out and my dad just couldn't take that because he's building all these houses for them. And He needed and to believe that Tony was actually who was he a, said he was. Yeah. yeah. And when he found out he wasn't, he left, but he couldn't leave with me because he had no resources. And I believe his addiction came back pretty quick. Um, and and that's evidenced in, in some of his life afterwards. Is he uh, alive now? You no, know, he passed away in 1994. I'm sorry. Yeah, no problem. Thanks. You've been through so much. <laughs> yeah, do but life—we're malleable. Humans are really. Well, how do you feel now? How how, mean, do, how are you? I've I'm well. I've done. I've had to go. I do therapy four times a month. Mm -hmm. I have to. It's really helpful. Not have to. I shouldn't use that kind of language. Um, but that's been my key: is is education, therapy, exercise, travel. Um, friendship, um, I'm, they've all helped me get a perspective on life that has helped pull me through and find success. And I'm, I'm pretty happy. I'm a pretty happy guy. You seem like <laughs> it. Yeah. Are, are you in touch with any people that you grew up with on the commune? And are there people that you feel have not landed the way you did? Absolutely. That's a really good question. Um, I've been fortunate enough to have been able to do a lot of therapy. I've done a lot of EMDR, a lot of mm -hmm. cognitive behavioral therapy. But I've got friends. I have a friend who's in life, in prison for life. I've had multiple friends who have done five to ten year prison stints. They just felt, got on the wrong side of the law. And most of them are people of color. Mm -hmm. um, and then I do have other friends who self-medicate with marijuana or alcohol, um, food, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, work, people, people find their, their crutches. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, and I don't think a lot of people could could sit down here and, and do this kind of thing, do an interview with you, because their lives, they, they haven't got the perspective, and it's really sad. There is, but I love them all, and, mm-hmm. you know, I'm there for them whenever I can. Whenever I well, you survived. Yeah, that's the key word there. Um, there's something in my DNA that just pushes me to... Well, it did, even when you were looking for bra shots in the <laughs> yeah, filing cabinet yeah. um, when you were 16. <laughs> yeah. um, imagine if you hadn't done that. You oh might God. thank goodness for your yeah. sexual drive. I know. Thank you very much. <laughs> so speaking of, you know, projects and things like that, yeah. first of all, you're married, yes? Yeah. Well, in- engaged. Well, that's yeah. wonderful to hear. <laughs> I think everyone would, listening would be really happy to hear that you found someone yeah. to be with like that yeah and i mean relationships are work but i am very happy with the person i'm with um she's a very amazing woman mm-hmm. and i'm really really lucky to be with her and and where can listeners find more about you your book sounds fascinating yeah i just found a publisher through wild blue press congratulations <laughs> again i know this is like the last week um, I went on the Dr. Oz show and told part of my story, but at BenjaminRisha.com, mm-hmm. that's my website. It's got all my media and stuff like that. I'll start getting on LinkedIn and <laughs> You'll stuff start like that. You're going to have to. <laughs> you have a publisher. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, Benjamin, there's so much more we could talk about. And, and maybe when your book comes out, you can come back. I'd love I mean, to. I hope you will. I would love um, to, Renee. I'm so glad you made the time. And it's really, it is something to meet you. It's my pleasure. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to And Then Everything Changed. For more on this episode and other interviews you might like, please visit atecpodcast.com. You can also find And Then Everything Changed on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you like this podcast, please do share it with your friends and take a minute and rate and review so that others can hear these stories too. Thanks for listening.